If you would, turn in your Bibles again to John, and we're in John chapter 16. Again, the context of the timing of this is Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples on the night prior to his arrest and his crucifixion. So this is on, would be on Thursday evening of, of uh, Passion Week. Uh, they've had the Lord's Supper, and then they've gone out uh, probably in their vicinity or their, in this, the area of the Mount of Olives, and, and then they're going to be traveling from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then they will be arrested. Uh, he will be arrested later in the, this evening. But this is the kind of the setting of where we're at in the, the context of John 16. And Jesus is continuing to give his disciples instructions that they will need going forward as his apostles uh, after the Holy Spirit has come upon them at Pentecost. So I'm going to start by reading uh, in John 16, starting in verse 16. And we'll just read a few verses and then we'll start uh, talking a little bit about that. In John 16, 16, it says, A little while and you will no longer behold me. Again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples, therefore, said to one another, What is this that he is telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, And because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he is saying? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Now, it, it's kind of odd that Jesus has been ministering to his disciples this whole time, for, th- for three years, he's been walking with them, and he has on many occasions talked about his impending death, talked about all the things that is fixing to happen, but they still do not understand exactly what he means, what he means by a little while. Now, I'm assuming that the term a little while means right now. It's, it's fixing to happen. It's, a, it's an imminent term that this is something that's going to happen real quickly. And so I think it's just still has not dawned on them exactly how this is going to go down and what's going to happen. And so they're a little bit confused about that. But I want to look at it from the standpoint of us looking at what he's talking about. Now he's talking about, first of all, in verse 5 of chapter 16, he said, but now I am going to him who sent me. So he says, I'm going back to the Father. Now he told them that in John 14, remember? He said, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Okay, so he's already told him about this, and, and, and Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we sure don't know how we're going to get there, or where, you know, the way. And so he's already talked to them in many, uh, many times about what's going to happen. But here you have the essence of the gospel message in these phrase here. He says here, a little while and you will no longer see me. You no longer behold me. So what's he talking about? He's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about him going to the cross. So the first thing he says is just in a little while, real shortly here, you're not going to be able to behold me. I, I'm, I'm going to be dead. Okay? And so when we think, about, we think about the reality of what he's saying and the importance and the significance of his death, I think it behooves us to look at exactly what the disciples will be looking at later on when the Spirit of God comes in there and then He guides them into all truth, like He said up there in chapter uh, 13, says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. When the, Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God came upon them at Pentecost and indwelled them, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of God came down and permanently indwelled the believers at that time, all the church saints from Pentecost until the rapture will be indwelled by the Spirit of God permanently, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens... 
He will guide these as apostles into all truth. And then he will bring to remembrance everything that Jesus said, and then they will have understanding of what Jesus said. And so as we're looking at this, and we're kind of, kind of a, identifying with his disciples in the moment that's happening, Jesus is talking to them right before he's going to be arrested and crucified. <clears throat> and he's talking about his death. Okay, so as we contemplate and think about the reality and the significance of the gospel, the significance of our understanding of the gospel, it's important for us to be able to tie it to other, to other scriptures to work so we can have a clear understanding of what Jesus is referring to in his death. So if you would turn, first of all, to Hebrews and understand that the, 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 the importance the importance of the incarnation. The importance of the incarnation. It had to be that Jesus became flesh, that the Word became flesh, in order for Him to be a substitute, atoning sacrifice for us. He had to be one of us, but not one of us. Does that make sense? He had to be a man, but He couldn't be a man after Adam. He had to be a perfect man. And so, but he had to become a man. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, when he's talking, when the writer of the book of Hebrews is explaining to Hebrew Christians that Jesus is far superior than anything else. They're holding on to the, the covenant of Moses, Mosaic covenant. They're holding on to their traditions. They're holding on to all those things. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking to Jews who have professed faith in Christ. And now they're contemplating going back and going back under the law and working and, 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 and worshiping as unto the Mosaic Covenant, and the writer is, is sharing with them the truths of how it's important for them to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and now we go forward with Jesus. We're not still in the concept of being under the Mosaic Law. But in chapter, chapter 2, speaking of this fleshly identity with, with us, he starts out in, in verse 9, he says, But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death and crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, first of all, he is talking about the angels. In chapter 1, he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, as in re reference to angels. Because he says over there... Um, in verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, and for today I have begotten thee? So he is, he is in his deity, he created the angels, but now he has been made lower than the angels, and so as a man, we are lower than the angels. Okay? From the standpoint of the creative order, we're lower, but from the standpoint of God's value, we have been elevated above them because he didn't die for the angels, he died for us. Right? So anyway, so he's talking about Jesus in verse chapter, in chapter 2, verse 9. And then he goes down in verse 12, or, um, no, in verse 14. And he says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver the, those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The incarnation is absolutely necessary. He had to become a man because he had to die. Deity cannot die. God could not die. He had to become a man so that he could die. He had to be a, had to be a man to identify with us, and then he had to be 
a man so that he could have a body that would be able to be put to death. Okay? So he had to become a man. So all this is part of the understanding of the gospel about Jesus Christ becoming flesh to die for us. Now look at Hebrews chapter 10. He goes on in this book talking about the sacrificial, uh, the sacrificial payment. He talks about the one sacrifice. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, in verse 12, he says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of, the, of God. So here he's saying is, for one time, he offered himself one time for all time. There's not another. That's why in, in Hebrews chapter 6, when, it's, when people get confused about that passage about, is it possible to lose your salvation, in Hebrews chapter 6, the whole point of that is it is, a, it is an impossibility, but if it were possible that you could lose your salvation, you could never be saved again. Why is that? Because there's only one Son of God becoming man. There's only one Adam that followed the first Adam. The last Adam is the only one coming. And if that Adam, the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God that became flesh, is not sufficient to take away sins for all time, there's not coming another. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying in chapter 6 is that if it were possible for you to be saved and be identified with Jesus Christ and have your sins forgiven, and then it were possible for you to lose that, it would be impossible for you to ever be saved again. Because there's not, there's not coming another. If his blood is not sufficient, there's not going to be another. This is, the, this is the only opportunity that you have to be saved. Okay? So he says that in verse 12. And then in verse 14 he says, For by one offering he has perfected all those, for all time those who are sanctified. By one offering he has perfected for all time. That means if you have, are identified with Christ in his death, you are perfected for all time. There's nothing that can change that. Nothing. So then he goes on down there in verse 17, and he says, And their sin and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now what, it's very important for you to understand that when Jesus paid the payment for your sins, it was forever and he will remember those sins no more. They will not be brought up again. When you die and you go to heaven, you're not going to go before a judgment of God to answer for your sins, period. All your sins and all your debt was covered with Jesus on the cross, and there is no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more payment for sin. There's no more judgment for sin. When we go to heaven, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to have an evaluation of how well we were usable vessels for the Spirit of God to pour Himself through. And all, that the, all the works that we did as the church saints, as the body of Christ, that were empowered, gifted by the Holy Spirit, He's going to reward us for what God did through us. He's not going to reward you for what you did in your, your flesh. And that doesn't mean it's bad. He's just not going to reward you for something you did. He's going to only reward you for what Jesus, what the Spirit of God did through you. It's not a judgment of sin. You're not going to give an account for your sins at the judgment of Christ. Now, sin, after you're born again, may hinder you from being a vessel that the Spirit of God can use. Therefore, you may lose rewards that you could have received if you hadn't had sin in this life. But the sin itself will not be evaluated at the judgment of Christ. Does that make sense? He's not going to remember your sin anymore. And the, and the reason that is, is Romans 6. When you go to Romans 6, he makes it very clear. When he's talking about the context of that is people that say that, that because God's 
dealing with sin is a grace thing of God that, that maybe we should sin more so that we could demonstrate more grace. He said, that's foolishness. Do you not know? It's verse 1, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into, G into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have, been, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with and we should no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin." So here again he says, we are baptized into his death. So when Christ went to the cross, he went to the cross for who? <laughs> for those whom he purposed to save before the foundation of the world. He didn't die for the sins of the whole world. He died for the sins of those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. This is particular atonement. He died to cover the sins of those whom he purposed to save. If Jesus had died for everybody, God would be unjust to send them to hell. Because the payment of Jesus is full, it's complete. And so it's identified with whoever is baptized into Jesus. So if you are baptized, that doesn't mean water baptism. It's talking about if you are identified with his death. So if you were chosen before the foundation of the world, God foreknew you before the foundation of the world, then you were predestined to be conformed to that image, which means you were predestined to become in the likeness of the resurrected Christ. And if you're predestined to become in the likeness of the resur resurrected Christ, then you are called, which means that the Spirit of God is going to call you into a born-again experience, going to call you into a regenerated. He's going to change your life or change your heart and give you a new heart that is from God. And all those who have a new heart from God will express themselves with faith. And because of that, they are justified or declared righteous. And everyone whom God foreknew will be glorified. So that means there's no, there's no break in that. If God foreknew you before the foundation of the world, you will be glorified, which means your sins are forgiven and you have been declared righteous, and it means you have been baptized into Jesus' death. So if you've been identified with Jesus' death on the cross, that means your sins were placed on Jesus at the cross, and he died for your sin. Okay? Now in Romans chapter 5, it makes it clear, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Okay? Now what does that mean? What does it mean when, when Adam sinned, we all sinned? I wasn't there. So how could I have sinned when Adam sinned? You're inheriting from nature. No. We are, he is our, what's the word? Federal. Representative, federal headship. So he, Adam, when Adam was created, he was given the federal headship over humanity. So when he acted, he acted on behalf of all humanity. So when he disobeyed God and sinned, we all were there because he was acting on our behalf. So if we are born physically as a descendant of Adam, we bring with that the nature that Adam gave us, but we also bring with it the condemnation that Adam had. So we are guilty before God because of Adam's sin, and then because we are born in sin, we sin. But our sins that we commit is not what puts us in the condemnation state, it's our identification with Adam. Just like when we're born again, we can do righteous things, but it's not our righteous things that cause us to be righteous before God. It's our identification with Jesus, the second Adam, or the last Adam, 
the righteous one, our identification with Christ is what is our righteousness, just like our identification with Adam is what our con- condemnation is. Does that make sense? So those who are righteous do things that are righteous, but it's not the things that they do are righteous that are counted as worthy of righteousness. It is Jesus' righteousness, just like those who are condemned in Adam sin, but it's not their sin itself that takes them to eternal hell. It is their it is the sin in Adam. And then at the great white throne judgment, the books are opened of your life, and then God's going to judge your sins that you commit, and it's going to be added to punishment in eternal lake of fire because God is a just God, and he's going to justly judge everything you've done wrong. But you're there because of Adam's sin and your identification in Adam. And so everybody that is born in the human race is already under condemnation. And everyone that's born in the human race has to be born again so that they can be identified with Christ and be baptized into his death. Would it be fair to say that in the book of life that was written before the foundation of the world, so those people already, he knows who's going to come. So you're not written in there post. No. You know, you're, you're written before the foundation, so he knows you're, you're going to... <clears throat> yes, and that's correct. And that's, in fact, uh, and all those who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. So the book of life, the recording, was of all, all those that God chose are written in the Lamb's book of life, and they are given to the Son as a love gift for those whom he is going to die for in John chapter 6. Well, the reason that the book of life is at the great white throne judgment is so the people in chapter 7 of Matthew that say, but Lord, I did this, and Lord, I did that. And he looks in the book of life. I never knew you. Your name's not in the book of life. So you deserve to be here. Now let's open up the books of your life and see how much God's going to have to judge you for your sin. Then it's, 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 yeah, it's serious stuff. Okay, so in Romans 6, he talks about the understanding of the death of Christ that's fixing to happen as he's explaining this to his disciples. Now, the second, the second thing he talks about in, in John 4, uh, 16 there is he says, a little while and you will no longer behold me, which means he's going to die, and again a little while and you will see me. So what's he talking about? Resurrection. resurrection. Okay, so he's talking about the resurrection. And, and so... The doctrine of the resurrection is imperative. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul makes it clear. This is the gospel. This is the, the, this is the understanding. The death is his identification with our sin. The resurrection is his God's acceptance of his identification with our sins. Okay? So he, he died for our sins. He went to the cross. But by his resurrection, it demonstrates that God accepted the payment for sin. He couldn't have been raised righteous. He couldn't have been raised at all if he didn't make adequate payment for sin because he became sin for us. So if he, he, when he became sin for us, it doesn't mean he sinned, but he became sin. He took our place, and if he took our place and he remained in the grave, then God was not satisfied with the payment. He had to be resurrected. And that's what... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Verse 1, it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you all, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, and unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now a couple things here. When He says, if you hold fast, does that mean you can lose it? He said, if you hold fast, the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. Now, how can you believe in vain? Okay. If you go, through, if you go look at John 3.16 again, and you do it in the context of John 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Okay? Which means... You have to have a nature in you that is given to you from God. You have to. Nicodemus believed the, the Mosaic Covenant. Nicodemus believed in God. He believed the truth about God. Many people today believe that Jesus died on the cross and believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And they believe that like you believe that chair is going to hold you up. and Hopefully it will. <laughs> because you have the ability as a human being to, to, to reconcile things, to understand things, and to believe in things. But that is not saving faith. You can know the facts about all that God has given to the people. You can accept those facts. That is not saving faith. The Spirit of God has to birth you, has to bring into you a nature that is from God. And if that nature that is from God is in you, and your response to the gospel is out of the heart... That is God's nature in you. Now, 1 John talks about this, and we, we've talked about it a lot. 1 John, I think it's 3, it says, If you are born of God, you cannot sin. Now, that means that what is born of God cannot sin. The nature that you get from God cannot sin. That's what Paul talked about in, in Romans chapter 7. When, when Paul is dealing with this idea, I've, I've, I've got a new heart. I've, I've got a new new desire in my heart. I am wanting to do what's right, but I find myself doing what's wrong. He says it in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not, but I practice the very evil that I, knew, that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. So in that nature that God gives you, it is perfect it is holy, it is righteous, it is the new you. That's who you are. You're born again from above. You are perfect in your spirit, in your soul. You are a soul that is prepared and ready to go directly to heaven as soon as you die. With no cleaning up, no nothing, you're ready to go to heaven because your soul is right with God. But you are existing in a body of flesh. And that doesn't just mean flesh and blood. It means this, this fleshly burden that was your nature that was who you are prior to your born again experience and now you are a different person inside of you but you still have all the trappings and all the lingerings of the flesh that came from adam and when you sin you're giving in to that flesh you're not sinning out of your nature and likewise with that nature comes a nature of god that cannot deny god so if you're born again 
and you hear the gospel that Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected and he died for your sins, and out of your nature, out of your heart, that hears that godly gospel, and you respond because I have a nature that is God, that cannot doubt God or cannot refuse the knowledge of God, that, that cannot help but accept the things of God. Out of that heart, I respond and believe the gospel. That is a demonstration of someone who is born again. And they will continue a life of repenting in faith that will be, that is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain because you believe from a heart that's been changed by the Spirit of God. People that believe the facts that have not have a heart changed by the Spirit of God are believing in vain because their heart hadn't been changed. They're not being made righteous. They're not been baptized into Christ's death. They're just accepting the facts. Make sure you understand that the heart generates faith that is right with God, that is acceptable by God, that has caused God to give you or declare you to be righteous and justified because it is a heart that flows out of a nature that God has given you. And it has been identified with Christ. So Paul goes on down and says uh, about the resurrection in verse 12, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, and how do, you, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus have perished. If, you, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are preaching a false gospel and it's in vain. But Christ has been raised. He goes on and says, But now, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. So if Christ was raised from the dead, all those who were baptized into Christ on the cross were also identified not only with His death, but with His resurrection. So if you are identified with Christ, that means you are identified not only with His death, therefore the payment of sins, but you're also identified with His resurrection. So if Christ was raised, we have to be raised. Because we're in Christ. We're like Christ. We have the nature of Christ in us. And we have been born again, and we've been justified. And if we are righteous, then we have to be raised. If God raised Christ, He has to raise us. And that's what He says. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all be made alive. So all those who are identified in Adam, and you're identified in Adam by physical birth or physical conception, okay? If you are conceived and become a part of the human race, you are identified in Adam. And in Adam, all are dead in trespassing sins. All are under condemnation. And so if your identification with Adam is by physical birth or conception, your identification with Christ is by spiritual birth or conception. So if you're in Adam, you're dead, you're condemned. If you're in Christ, you're alive and you're righteous. It's because of who you're identified with. So all will be raised. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. So Jesus Christ was the first man 
God-man, first one to be resurrected with a resurrected body. Now, we got two people in the Old Testament that didn't die, Enoch and Elijah. And we don't know for sure when they went up, if they got a glorified body at that time, or if their souls went up and their earthly body disintegrated. We don't know. I would tend to believe that they had a glorified body. And the only reason they could have a glorified body before Christ's glorified body is because they didn't die. Christ is the first fruits of the dead, not necessarily the first, <laughs> first fruits of a glorified body. I don't know that. But either way, it doesn't matter. The rest of us that died in the Old Testament and up until Christ uh, died on the cross, they went to a place of Hades. Now, whether Hades, wherever Hades is, we don't know. Could be in the center of the earth, could be somewhere else. But at Hades, there was a place of paradise and a place of hell. Paradise is a place that the souls of the righteous went, and hell was a place the souls of the unrighteous went. And there was a gulf fixed between them. It seems to be that when Christ died, he went to Hades and he delivered the souls of the saints to heaven with him, and paradise was transported to heaven because Paul was transported into the third heaven and he saw paradise there. So paradise would have been transported to heaven. Hell remains in Hades. So in Revelation 20, it says, Death and Hades give up the dead which are in it. Those are the ones, the souls that are in hell. Does that make sense? Okay. So, but each one that is in Christ will be resurrected in their own order. There is an order to the resurrection. Okay? There's an order. First you have Christ raised from the dead. Then you will have the bride of Christ raised from the dead at the rapture of the church. So at the rapture of the church, the Old Testament saints are not resurrected. It's not all believers of all ages that are resurrected at the rapture of the church because the bridegroom is coming for his bride. That's the whole point of this part of the second advent is that the bridegroom, and when Jesus talk, when he told, told them that in, in John chapter 14, he makes it clear to his disciples as they are going to be part of the church or the apostles of the church and the bride. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So Christ the bridegroom is coming in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about this coming of for his bridegroom, it's not, it's not his coming to earth to establish the kingdom for Israel. It's his coming to establish, uh, to receive his bridegroom. For if we believe in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For if we say we, to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be called up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be the Lord. The point he's making here is, in verse 14, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Bring with him where? Back to the Father's house. The bridegroom, in the tradition of the Jewish wedding, the bridegroom goes to the house of the bride, fetches the bride, and takes him back to the father's house to have the wedding ceremony. And that's the picture here. 
The bridegroom's coming for the bride. So the church saints will be resurrected at the time of this coming in the air. At the middle of the tribulation, in Revelation 11, there's two witnesses that are witnessing for, for the glory of God, witnessing for the kingdom of God, for the person of Jesus Christ, in Jerusalem for 1260 days, the first half of the tribulation, and they're standing there in the streets, and the Antichrist is resurrected from the dead. He gets slain with the sword. He comes back to life. He's filled with Satan's presence, and he, and he kills these two witnesses. This is an example of, well, I'll, I'll go to that in a minute, because it's an example of the people rejoicing over over what's going to happen to Christ. But anyway, they are in the streets for three and a half days, and then God resurrects them, gives them a glorified body, and they go into heaven. So that's the second order, or the second part of the resurrection of the righteous. And then in Revelation 20, he makes it clear that the souls that were beheaded, the souls that died during the tribulation, will be resurrected. He says in verse 4, I saw thrones of chapter 20 of Revelation. I saw thrones and they set upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these are resurrected before the thousand year kingdom of Christ. In Daniel chapter 12, it says that the Old Testament saints will also be resurrected before the millennial kingdom of Christ at the time of the great tribulation. So the, rest, the, the, the resurrection of the righteous, John chapter 5, verse 29 says there's a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the unrighteous. The resurrection of the righteous is the first resurrection, and it is completed. It's a, there's an order to it. The rapture of the saints, the two witnesses, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, but all saints that have, will have died will all be resurrected prior to the kingdom age. Prior to the thousand years. Blessed and holy is the one, in verse 6, who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. All of saints from Adam to the last one in the tribulation that is martyred or killed or died will be resurrected prior to the thousand year reign of Christ. The first resurrection is completed. So the second resurrection here, he says the rest of the dead, verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And this is the second resurrection. And the second resurrection is found in verse uh, 11 uh, of chapter 20. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So the ones that are blessed in verse 6 and a part of the first resurrection, the second death has no power. The ones involved in the second resurrection at the end of the thousand years, they're cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is the eternal death. So you're born in sin, you're condemned. If you're not born again, you have died, you're separated from God. So in this life and until this judgment of the great wine, you're dead. But when you are sentenced at the great white on judgment, you're cast into the lake of fire, which is the eternal separate. There is no more opportunity for anyone to become alive in Christ once they go to the great white on judgment. They're cast in the lake of fire, which is the eternal death, eternal separation from God. There's no way out. 
Okay, so back to John 16. That's a lot of chasing rabbit holes, but anyway, it all kind of comes together. We're talking about the gospel, the, the reality and understanding what Jesus meant when he said, a little while and you will no longer behold me, and again a little while and you will see me. So then the disciples say, and they repeat this, and then they add to it the idea of him going and the ascension. So you have the crucifixion, you have the resurrection, and now you have him going back to the Father, the ascension. And tied with the doctrine of the ascension, where Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, he, he walked with them for 40 days after he was resurrected. He appeared to them for 40 days. In fact, uh, in that 1 Corinthian passage, the proof of his resurrection, Paul demonstrates with the idea that, that he uh, appeared to the apostles and the others. Because he says right after he gives the gospel message in chapter 1 through 4, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, to the, to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of those whom have reigned until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as if it were to me, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So the evidence or the factual evidence uh, a testimony of his resurrection was to those who saw his resurrected body. Okay. Now, where was I? Okay, in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, after 40 days of being, appearing to his apostles and disciples uh, after his resurrection, he's preparing to leave. Verse 3, it says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing words, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in 10 days later, after this, it's 50 days from Passover is the Pentecost. Pentecost is 50, is five, um, 50 days which is five, uh, how many weeks? Seven, uh, seven plus one. Seven weeks plus one. So in 50 days, he is going to send the Holy Spirit down at Pentecost, but he hasn't done this yet. And he says, and so in verse 6, and so they had come together and were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So here is the disciples who are all Jews, and they're thinking he's the Messiah. He's resurrected. Now it's time for the kingdom. But Jesus has been teaching them that there's going to be a time for them to be his apostles, and they don't get it until Pentecost. And then they get it at Pentecost because the Spirit of God comes down there, and then they stand up and declare with power that there is a, a church that's going to be brought in during this time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. So then he goes on down there, and in verse 11, while they're standing there, after he's gone up and uh, he's gone up and been ascended into heaven, these uh, two angels in white clothing stood beside them in verse 11, and they said, also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, a lot of people get confused because they say, well, there's only one coming back, and he's coming back visibly to be seen by everybody. Well, that's true. At the time of the end of the tribulation that is recorded in Matthew chapter 24, when uh, after the tribulation of those days, it says that the sun will be turned to darkness. 
Immediately after the tribulation, verse 29 of chapter 24 of Matthew, the, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So at the end of the tribulation, after the tribulation, the sun's going to be blacked out, and then you're going to see the Shekinah glory coming as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming with his, with his progression of saints with Him, and they're coming out of heaven, and is going to have the glory of God proceeding with them, and the people on the earth that are following the Antichrist, that have taken His mark, are mourning. They're saying, oh my goodness, what's happening? And they're going to see Him coming. So He's going to descend back to earth like He ascended bodily. So He's coming back bodily, and every eye is going to hold Him. That's not the rapture. That's Him coming to save Israel and to set up His kingdom. So the context of Acts chapter 1 is in his reference to this restoring the kingdom of, of Israel, and that's at the end of the tribulation when he comes back to set up his kingdom. So the doctrine there in chapter, chapter 16 of John, you have the doctrine of the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, all contained in these words of Jesus that the apostles will get later, but they don't understand now. He says, and they didn't understand, we do not know what he's talking about. Okay, any questions real quick? Don't have to be quick. Any questions? I'm sorry. I'm confused. Back to first. Hold on. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. You probably felt this a bit more. I just can't remember. What about the saints that were raised when the veil was torn? Yeah, that's an that's a interesting one. After the resurrection, there were saints that came out of the grave uh, in Jerusalem. And some people think that they were resurrected and went to heaven. Some people think they were resurrected like Lazarus and then died again. I'm not sure that it makes it clear on that, but it was a visible presentation to the Jews in Jerusalem that Jesus had the power to raise people from the dead. Okay. What did you? I'm confused about that first Thessalonian uh, reference. Like, what if we die now, we'll go right to heaven. But those that are asleep will be raised first at the time of the rapture. But are those the first? The Old Testament? No, no, no. So she's talking about the, the passage in 1 Thessalonians. When we die, when we die, as all saints right now, when we die, our souls are directly in heaven. Okay? Now, at the resurrection or at the rapture of the church, if you're still living at the time of the rapture, you're not dead, your body will be changed, like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, in a twinkling, in a moment. In the, in the flicker of the eye or whatever, you will be changed from a physical body to a glorified body, and you will be going up with Christ. But those who died are going to receive a resurrected body. Their spirit's coming with Christ from heaven. They're united with a body that's coming up or a body that's created by God. And so that glorified body is going to be united with the spirit that has come from heaven, the soul, and you will be raised first, or you will not be raised, the, the ones that are changed will not be changed prior to the ones being resurrected. That's what it means. That the ones being resurrected will not precede, uh, I mean, the ones that are being translated or, or, or transformed will not precede those who are being resurrected. We'll all go up together. It says we'll go up together in that passage. So the dead in Christ will be resurrected, and then we who are alive will be changed, and we'll all go up together from that standpoint. But he's talking about the church saints. He's not talking about the Old Testament saints at that time. He's talking about the church saints. But the souls of the Old Testament saints have already been taken. They're in heaven now. They were in paradise and now they're in heaven. Okay. 
The next, pep, the next section is when Jesus explains to them how they're going to respond to what's going to happen in a little while. The little while referring to his death and what's coming. And Jesus, in verse 19, knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not behold me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow but because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away. So what he's saying is, you don't understand. I'm going to be taken away from you, and you're going to act like the world has come to an end. Your world has come to an end. And that's what happened, right? They fled. They were fearful. They were afraid what's going to happen. They didn't get it that he was coming back. They didn't understand all that, that he had done, just told them. It didn't make sense to them. They didn't grasp it all. And so what happened in the time of the moment, and we'll get into that when we get into that time, when Jesus is arrested, they're fearful, they hide. And then when he is crucified, they're in anguish and sorrow because the one they put all of their marbles in, the one that they put all of their stock in, the one that they believed in, is dead. And what does that mean? But when he was resurrected and appeared before them, their sorrow turned to joy. And that's what he's saying. He said, for a little while, you're going to be sorrowful. And then what he says, he said, a little while and you will be sorrowful. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. What does that say? The world is rejoicing because Jesus died? Yeah. And it's depicted in that passage in Revelation 11 when I was talking about the two witnesses. In chapter 11 of Revelation, in verse um, 3, it says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, in Revelation, you have to be understand, there's a time period in Revelation that is exactly seven years in length of Jewish prophetic years, which is 360 days to a year. The Jewish calendar has 360 days in a, in a year, and... There's 12 months, all of them have 30 days. So there's 1,260 days from the time that the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel until this point, at the midpoint of the tribulation. And for 1,260 days, these two witnesses are going to stand like Elijah and Moses in Jerusalem, and they're going to have the power of Elijah and Moses, and they're going to do miracle things and works, and nobody can harm them. They're going to bring fire down from heaven. They're going to cause plagues to come open the people. And so they're going to be doing this for 1,260 days. And then it says... These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord on the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystic, mystically called Sodom and, uh, and Egypt, where, where also the Lord was crucified. And those from the people and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. 
And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God comes into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. But they rejoiced over the death of the saints of God that were giving the message of God. Just like they rejoiced when Jesus died, they rejoiced when Christians are persecuted and martyred. That's why the, the Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church because he thought he was doing God a favor because he was getting rid of these that were denying the Mosaic Covenant. So again, so Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to weep, you're going to be sorrowful, you're going to be... And then he goes on down, and we'll get into the next time, but he says... In verse 32, an hour is coming and already has come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because of the Father. So they're going to they're gonna run. They're going to be scared. They're going to run. They're going to hide from those who came and took Jesus into custody and are going to crucify him. They were fearful, and they ran. So Jesus has finished his teaching them, except for one thing that we're going to cover next week, and that's in verse 23 through 28 when he talks about the power of prayer. Okay? While they had Jesus with them, they didn't have to rely on prayer. So he's, he's given them two promises. First, the promise that the Holy Spirit's coming to indwell them and to guide them. And then here in, in this next passage, he's going to give them the promise of prayer, that they can go to the Father and pray. And there is power because whatever they pray for in the will of God will be answered by the Father and he will give them what they need. And so he's going to give them the provision of the Spirit and the provision of calling on the Father for their needs while he is away. Okay? So he's going to tell them that and again they're not going to remember that until Pentecost. And at Pentecost they're filled with the Spirit, they're dwelled the Spirit of God and all of a sudden these scared, uneducated fishermen and other people, tax collectors, they're going to stand up in Jerusalem and speak with power and authority the mighty words of God to the word the, the Pharisees and the people saying, what is going on? These are unlearned men. They don't have any knowledge of this. What are they doing? Because it's going to be an obvious presentation of the power of God upon them when the Spirit of God comes upon them. 